Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling fearless. Oh, okay. Because today's guest has a fearless quality about him. And I've actually heard him use that word in regard to the talent, the actors, the the people that he collaborates with uh, regularly. And that's a kind of personality trait that he really respects is this kind of fearlessness. And in the last uh, sort of 15 years or so, he's completely revolutionized television for the better. I feel like Um, He creates very empathetic, psychological, sexy, powerful storytelling and across things from like Nip Tuck to Glee to American Horror Story, American Crime Story, Pose, which was one of my favourite shows ever made, Dharma and, you know, so, so many more things, even the Normal Heart film adaptation. And you two have also been collaborators. So you were friends. We've never actually met before. So this is a huge privilege for me. And yeah, he also has an incredible passion and love for art, which is very handy for talk art and he lives with art he collects and he also produced and oversaw the incredible and if you have not seen this you must see it on netflix or online the warhol um incredible documentary obsessed Obsessed with that yeah so we would like to welcome to talk art the one and only legendary ryan murphy hello guys what an introduction (laughs) what an introduction thank you how are you ryan you know, I'm good. I'm here after a long year of work and strikes, and I'm settled in LA with three young boys. And I, you know, so I'm doing Elf on the Shelf, which is its own <laughs> form of art, trying to make that interesting, and getting ready for the holidays. And Russell and I have a big show coming out at the end of January which was supposed to come out in October, but we pushed it to January, and I'm glad we did because we're going to have a really big premiere. It's called, it's the second season of Feud. It's called Capote versus the Swans, but Russell's quite brilliant in that. And so I'm going to see your smiling face in a matter of weeks in New York. I'm excited. I'm excited too. You're very sweet for saying that at the start of the podcast. Thank you very what, much, Ron. What was it about Truman Capote that, that led you to produce and make that show? You know, it's interesting. I always have these things that happen to me. Dahmer was a perfect example that when I was growing up, and I had just moved to L.A., that case had happened. And I wasn't even in show business then. I was a journalist. But, for example, I was like, oh, I'm going ru- to do something with that story one day. I don't know what. And I had the same feeling about many, many things. Um, I believe in preordained 
fate, call it what you will. But in the case of Truman Capote, when I was growing up as a, a young, gay, toe-headed child, very similar to Truman, I was always me. I always talked like this. I was very particular. My grandmother kind of, I was very close to her. And whenever I would be at her house and we'd watch talk shows, and like the early 70s, which is how Truman Capote supported himself, my grandmother was always very interested in him. And I thought that was fascinating just because he was so charismatic and odd. So I was drawn to him as a young child, and I instantly knew, like, oh, we're the same. You know, I couldn't really articulate my gayness, but I just knew the other, the sensibility of it. And I've always been interested in him and trying to figure out a way to do something about him. And then the show happened, the first season of the show, the first feud, which was Joan Crawford versus Betty Davis. Another weird story because I was I did Betty Davis's last interview before she died when I was a young journalist. Yeah. So I just have connections to people, particularly obviously biographical figures, but, and then we did that first season and we were always hunting for like, what's another feud. And I'm very particular about what it's going to be and how we're going to do it. Cause I have to have something to say as an artist to do that show. Cause feud is really about love gone wrong, not about hate. And so I guess it just took a couple personal things in my life to really understand it that idea of intimacy with someone you're not married to, particularly a gay man with female friendships. Mm. So Robbie and I loved exploring that. And then, you know, we finished it and I called every friend I had in the business, apparently. With the, it's like the towering inferno, this show. There's every <laughs> star in the world. Um, oh, actually, only a couple guys, but, you know, just legends that I've known and worked with, like Jessica Lang and Naomi Watts and yeah, I've always wanted to work with Demi Moore, never could. I squealed um, when I heard she was in it. I was so excited that Demi yeah. was back on yeah, screen. Yeah, me too. She's just an icon. I love her. And I've been I've been courting her for 20 years, you okay, know, and yeah. I've gotten close on a couple of things. And of course, you know, Russell plays one of the greats, a really, really difficult role that he killed. And I look at you and I'm like, where are your mutton chop sideburns? <laughs> But, you know, Naomi Watts and I were talking today and we were like, God, we really missed that making that show because we were, you know, everybody in that show was, you know, not a child anymore. And we've all had ups and downs on our personal life. And it was just so adult and it was so rich. Robbie's writing is so brilliant. And Gus Van Sant, who's a legend, did six of the eight of them. Um, it just felt like a, it felt like a very coming of age project for me. That's amazing. So you, you spoke just now about your grandma's house and seeing Truman Capote. And this was in the 60s, 70s in Indianapolis? Yes. Don't age me, Russell, but yes. <laughs> so what, timeless. So art is so important to you. But mm -hmm. at that age, was you aware of art as being something that was available to you? Yes. One of my favorite stories about me when I was five years old, my mother, who was a very sort of glamorous figure in my life, very young when she had me. Um, so we kind of grew up together. She found and bought, and I think she had to scrimp and save for it, a tabletop, it was almost like a paperweight of Robert Indiana's love. Oh, wow. And it was an object in our house that was all colonial furniture from Sears, um, which was the Dick Van Dyke style of the time. And the moment that I l laid eyes on that Robert Indiana sculpture, I 
I just was very interested in it. And I would steal it every day from her room. And, she, and I would take it in my room and I just coveted it. And I wanted it for myself because I felt I was the only one who appreciated it. And she would find it. And it was almost like a game of hide and go seek. But I was so drawn to it and so wanted it and consumed with it. And then I remember from that going to the library and looking up Robert Indiana, the artist, and realizing like, oh, this is not the real thing, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> the big month. Um, but I was always, always obsessed with art at a very young age, different, different types of art. But that, that coveting of that thing was a very early thing in my life. And then I always admired art and loved art and studied art education and art um, history in college. I actually think I would have been a really good museum director looking back, but I went into stupid show business. And then, you know, I became lucky enough to be able to, my, my feeling about art is I'm interested in a lot of different things to the point where I have a very, very large collection. You know, Russell's been in some of my um, family homes and has seen things. And I collect a lot of different styles to the point where I've been thinking about having a really big blowout sale at an auction house of all of my work. And to do that, you know, you have to show someone everything that you've collected. And I think most people collect one thing. And I just collect what I'm interested in learning about. So the person who was looking at the list of everything said, I think we should call your auction schizophrenia because it's so many, many, many things. And, you know, I go through phases in my life and I've just entered a different phase. And the thing that I was really obsessed with that I'm like, yeah, okay, I know enough about that. So I can kind of tell when my taste turns, it's because I've just learned enough about it. It's an, educa it's an, it's an education for myself and it's become an education for my children, you know. So instead of I'm just very thrilled. So instead of just reading about the subject, though, you, you feel like if you acquire work of the artist, it's like an even deeper education. And then you've learned enough and you feel like the work can move on. Yes, I feel like I'm trying to learn something about myself at the moment. I'm collecting something. You know, one of the first things that I started to really collect in a major way was I got married in 2012 in Provincetown. And in that year that I got married, you know, I've always been interested in forgotten women, you know, mm. that's a theme of my work. Forgotten gay men particularly is another theme. So in 2012, I started to learn about Helen Frankenthaler, who was very in the, in the shadow of her husband and has, of course, now eclipsed him. And she painted down the street from our house in Provincetown. So I was like, oh, wow. And so I just began learning about her. I couldn't afford it then. But then um, once I could, I just started to really, really collect only two things, the beginning of her career and the end of her career. And I was interested in that idea of, at the beginning of her career, she really kind of painted for herself. And at the end of her career, she knew she had kind of made it. And she painted in a different way. So I liked, I'm like, I like the beginning and the end of the Frankenthaler thing, that idea of obscurity to legend. So, you know, and it's been great because my children, three boys who are all kind of you know, different, but have grown up knowing about Helen Frankenthaler. And in our, in our dining room is this massive pink early Frankenthaler. And my, my oldest son at the age of five was like, are boys allowed to have pink paintings? I was like, what are you talking about? So it just sort of led to a, it led to a great depth of curiosity about masculine, feminine, gender roles. And so then I was, you know, then at a certain point I reached 
<laughs> I reached my end of my Frankenthaler phase, and now I'm off to another thing. But I always have done that, you know. That that kind of like um, irrepressible curiosity you have for knowledge um, seems to be something that underpins the whole of your career. And I was really fascinated by Provincetown. You've mentioned Provincetown because the location mm -hmm. that you actually moved into was for, for two decades the home to an abstract expressionist painter, Hans Hoffmann. Yeah. And I, I'm really fascinated about the way that you then preserved you know, for future generations, which is kind of what I feel like you do in your work through storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, you're kind of preserving these legacies of people that were not heard in their lifetime or, or were misunderstood or were misrepresented, oh, yeah. particularly women, but also, you know, even in, da in Dharma, like all of the, mm -hmm. the kind of unheard, you know, women in that story mm -hmm. and people of colour and, you know, the black community that was just ignored by the police. Um, what, what was it like to actually take over someone's space that was an art studio and then sort of work out how to live within that? Well, it was interesting because my career has very much in a way that I, I, you know, you don't really understand your career until I think 20 years in, mm. I'm, 20, I'm 25 years in now. And I realized, oh, my career has been about two things, unearthing buried history. Because when I was growing up, I'm like, where was my Andy Warhol? I would love to have seen that as a kid. I would love to have seen the Capote show as a kid. Um, un so buried history and I've taken characters who in my early lifetime were marginalized and made them the center of the story. The heroes and heroines where they used to be sidekicks. But the Hans Hoffman story was interesting because I knew nothing at all about him. We lived in Provincetown. We had this kind of house at the other end of the town. And I would walk by this house that had huge 200-year-old glass-leaded windows. And I was just obsessed with these windows, thinking, oh, my God, if there's a, an, an errant baseball or a rock, whatever, like, I, I was always, like, very concerned about it. It was beautiful. And I, I, I was more concerned about the windows than anything else, because it's so, I mean, I, Russell's been in that house. It's I've insane. slept in the house. It's incredible. Yeah. And um, a year and a half into our Provincetown life, that house came up on the market, and I what was happening in Provincetown at the time was a true gentrification, mm. you know, where these historic places like the John Waters, a friend of mine told me when he moved to Provincetown on my street, people had no money. They lived in trees. They made tree houses for the summer. And, and then the AIDS crisis came and every other house in that town was boarded up or left in decay. And so my, I saw the house and it was instantly magical. And the person who was selling it was quite brilliant because right before the showing put banana bread in the oven and and like had the fire going and it was insane. And I saw it at Thanksgiving when you kind of went home up and I, and it was made out of shipwrecks, that house. It was a, it was a two story kind of studio. And on the top story, you'd look over the railing and it would be like Helen Frankenthaler and Motherwell and all of these icons and, and Hans Hoffman would be down there painting, showing people how to paint. And I was struck by two things. It was the second or third time that Helen Frankenthaler kept coming up in my life. And then I looked on the floor and there was all of this paint that was from Hans Hoffman. Then I found out there was another Boston couple that was going to buy this house and rip everything out and do like a restoration hardware thing. And I was like, well, I can't, I can't have that happen and interestingly enough a full circle moment to buy that house i had to sell the one warhol painting that i had which had belonged to lauren hutton 
that was a Warhol skull. And I remember thinking, just bereft, like, oh my God, the one great thing I have at that point, I had to give to get. Um, so I sold my Lauren Hutton Warhol and I bought the Hans Hoffman house. And it was the best thing that I ever did because it led me down this wormhole. Then a couple of years later, the main residence where he lived came up for sale. And I, and I bought these things not so much to do anything but to preserve them and to study the original way that they had been used. And, you know, I, I found all these pictures with my designer, David Caffiero, and we recreated what had been and had been ripped out by time. And then I went on a wormhole. Where I was like, okay, well, I want to bring back to this house as many paintings as he made here and then were sold. So every year, you know, in Hans Hoffman, slowly but surely as everything happens in art, what, what is out of fashion comes back in fashion. Now suddenly he's in fashion. And I, it's so funny, I got like a call or an email the other day from Bob Iger, who's a friend of mine who's my boss. And he said, I heard you collect Hans Hoffman, so do I. And I was like, yes, a brother in arms. But whenever we bring a Hans Hoffman painting back that was painted in the studio, you know, we kind of have a ceremony because it's like a homecoming. It's kind of a magical. And I got to learn everything there is about not just him, but that period period of time and that he had had a real love for other artists and taught so many people who far eclipsed him in talent and, and fame. I love that but, rule. But I became obsessed. I love that rule that the paintings that you acquire of his are ones that have been painted in that studio. How do you determine that because of the dates of them and that's when he was occupying? Yes. Right. Yeah. So you kind of really know when he was like in a solitude period. He didn't take he didn't paint or teach all the time, but you can track his career and know that he painted in solitude heavily in these this era, which is a very different kind of look than when he was painting for students. So some of the paintings I have are things that he was making to show students how to oh, do really color like, like demonstration works, yeah. Yeah. Cool. And then some were the massive one I have, the masterpiece I have, was something that he was not teaching and he made for himself. You know, and, and so I've I've learned a lot. My children have learned a lot. And um, it's been a beautiful thing because that is what art is to me. Like I'm learning or I'm interested in something. And for example, like right now, I've, I've, I, I'm really leaving a figurative phase and moving into like, minimalism and greek and roman first ad helmets of course which makes absolutely no sense <laughs> i think one of the most striking things in that studio is is the original easel and the original stool and they're all paint yes. splattered and they're just like these archaeological finds that are just and they were there with the house when you acquired it his painting board was there the stool had been sold at a yard sale and was bought by a woman in her 90s. And when she died, I believe it was one of her kids said, I think you should have this. So I think it was, it, I don't, it was either the easel or the, the, the stool. It might have been both. So they were reunited. So it's things like that that makes Provincetown kind of a magical oh my God. thing. I also love the loft, um, which you converted into a kind of office, a writing office, but it's surrounded by the wooden, I guess the panels off ships or something, these kind of wooden boards that are on the wall and they're all paint splattered. And I read that yeah. it kind of inspires people like yourself who would be writing at that desk, you know, looking at the paint. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like it, it, the, I think the key 
in any of these spaces is if you can to keep them alive and not like just cold monuments. Like I do a lot of, I've written a lot of things in that house and I've had a lot of artists in that house. And then I found out this weird thing in the seventies, very famous divas would come into town mm. like Lena Horne and Betty Davis. And they would sing down at the gay bars and Betty Davis stayed in that house for a week. <gasps> That's so I was like, wild. wow. But, and Andy Warhol stayed in that place. No. So, so it, the, the world is very small and everything is connected. And I was just like, wow, that's kind of interesting. And when you interviewed Betty Davis, it was right at the end of her life almost, I think. But wasn't it like a really long interview? And you still have the tapes. Yeah, I do. I want to hear those tapes. I was like, what are you going to do with that? That's amazing. Well, first of all, my voice is really high because I was so young and nervous. But I'd never been in L.A. and I flew to L.A. and I had been writing her since I was 14 years old. Fan notes. And then I became, and, and and she would send back the occasional picture or something. And then she became ill. And I was old enough that I was very young still. I was in my early 20s. I had a syndicated column. And I said, I would really like to interview. And, and she said, okay. I was shocked. So I got on a plane. I flew to LA. Her assistant, who was lovely, Catherine Cermak, said, you have 20 minutes. And it ended up being like hours and hours and hours. And she just like that somebody knew everything that she had done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would literally, I mean, I, I had a, did and kind of do now have a photographic memory for stuff. And I think she just, and she, then she died. And I, I had the, I did kind of the last interview and I have those tapes, but it was just such an amazing privilege. You know, I look at my life and all of the things and people that influenced me. I've either got to be friends with them, like Barbara Streisand. The first movie I saw, I was four, was Funny Girl. And I just instantly knew like, oh, someone has an energy that I can relate to in some way. There's a way out for me. Fanny Bryce got out. I can get out. And I was young. So that's been the, the great joy of my life is, uh, is the curiosity factor of um, my influences. And, and, you know, recently I got to get a Robert Indiana painting. Um, which was a very rare thing. And it's the painting of the number nine, which is my lucky number. Taylor Swift has 13. I have nine. And um, so I was like, wow, that is a full circle moment that that was my first conscious memory as a child of art, something that I want because it's special. And it's, it was speaking to me and the word love was interesting. And it's been a gift. Did you start collecting from early on in your career? And was you when you was visiting these people's houses, I, I assume they would have art collections that would be incredibly inspiring to you. Not really, no, which is the the funny thing about it. I mean, you would think so, but no. I mean, if, I didn't really start the collecting thing until early on in my career. The first thing that I ever got was I was dating somebody and he gave me an Irving Penn photograph. I remember thinking like, huh, interesting. And then when I was a younger person, I would go to the Chateau Marmont and I would see um, Helmut Newton. And, and I mean, so I fell into the art thing, even though I had a huge attraction to it as a child, you know, I mean, when I moved to LA in 1989, it was, it was different. It was very contemporary and rarefied. You know, I think you go into the CAA lobby and I believe there was this massive Lichtenstein in the lobby. So I, I it was always, I was conscious of it, but it, it never became something I, I really pursued heavily until I could. And then it just became an all-out addiction. You know, like, that's what it feels like now. 
I think I've had the privilege of visiting a few of your houses and each of the collection feels really unique to that particular house. Like you're saying about the Hans Hoffman, the works mm-hmm. there, the your your house in New York, the, the collection there is, mm-hmm. there's, there's Warhol in there, but a lot of it is AIDS-affected uh, artists from the mm-hmm. 80s, which I'm completely obsessed with as well. I have an affinity for that. Is that something you consciously set out to do as well as your collection grew that, you know, the house became a museum for certain arms of your collection? Yeah, you know, I'm writing a book right now on my homes and on our art collection. I mean, it's interesting to see like, okay, how do you live with things? And I I always feel like I'm a showrunner, I'm a producer. And what that means to me is it's my responsibility to create a world, a narrative of what is the story of this? What do you, what's your story? Everybody has a story. So in New York, for example, I never dreamed I could ever have a house in New York. It was my dream as a kid. And then I, you know, I got this house and it's, you know, very close to Christopher Street, the gayest street in the world. And I just decided you know what would be really interesting is to do a tribute to all of the artists that I would have loved and never gotten to know oh, exactly. that were kind of my age. So I started, the first thing I bought for that house was a, a masterpiece that was at the Whitney. I don't even know why it was for sale, but it was. It was a David Wanarovich painting. You've seen that painting. Mm-hmm. You, you've gasped at that painting, mm-hmm. as one does. Mm-hmm. And it's truly a massive commentary, very beautifully done about the AIDS epidemic. And then yeah, I started doing the Warhol thing and and so the house has changed a lot but there's a lot of young artists in that house taken too soon or specifically gay artists like there's also like several cadmus things and warhol things and but I think every house it was the hugh steers for me were the works patrick angus and yes. hugh steers you have these masterpieces and mm-hmm. i sort of discovered hugh steers through your collection and being photographed in like Architectural Digest, for example, and going, who the mm-hmm. hell is that? And what you sort of, by your kind of shining a light on these artists, brought them into prominence. Like, you did, were you aware that you had that sort of power to do that? <laughs> it was a very funny thing where I started obsessively collecting Patrick Angus, and I was just so taken by the story of how he was an, an AIDS artist died really young and basically all of his work i believe was in a relative's home in oklahoma city or something like that it was like in a attic and it had been sitting there for years and years and years and somebody had found it and there was a you know there was a there is now a a renaissance of queer art in new york for a long time that went out of fashion and i went to a, a one dealer in new york who had four of them and i bought all four of them and then got them for a song, but I didn't really care. I never really care about those things. I just, it matters to me, my connection to it. And then a year later I saw one and I tried to get it and the price had like tripled. And I had just realized that because it had been photographed, you know, and everybody starts, I always think like things fall out of favor and then come back at the same time. There's some like weird current that happens in the art market, but my stuff has always just been personal to me and the idea that I'm setting a story. For example, I'm doing a house now um, and I just wanted to do something weird. So I've been collecting old master paintings for years and restoring them, saving them. Um, and so I've just like decided who, that like, this... Like what, what artists? A lot of them are like people you wouldn't even know. I mean, that, that obsession started with because I had done a show about Gianni Versace 
and above his bed, in his bedroom, there was an amazing painting by a vanguard artist named Sophie Rude. You don't hear the idea that female painters are in the old master class very often. And Versace had seen something in her renegade spirit. It's a very violent stabbing. And I tr tracked that painting down and got it. So that became my obsession. And so I'm doing this whole house in old master paintings that I've collected. And, I, and it's two stories high. And the top floor is all of these old masters and the idea. I'm like, huh, okay. So this should be like, feel like a very rarefied hunting lodge. Let's do that. And the theme of this house is called Sandals and Scandals, <laughs> because that's what all the paintings are. <laughs> and it's just, and most of them are murder tableaus, because I've also had a lot of that in my career. And many of them are female artists who were, one, I believe, in the 16th century, I'm just tracking this down, was killed because she was an artist. Uh, so I just, it's just very bizarre things that I uh, fall into the wormholes of, of that. So then, for example, so then I had a, a theme, Hunter's Lodge, and I found an artist who's incredible, and I, I'm not even going to attempt her name, but she is um, a brilliant young artist who's very influenced by Lalonde and has done like huge life-size sculptures of beasts of prey. So like, it, it's just, just becomes like an idea of like, oh, that's interesting. That's a story. I like stories, how I live. And I like in changed environments. And, and the thing about my career is I've never, I, the, I always do the opposite of what I've just done. So, you know, if I do something very sort of dark, then I do, that's, I do something light. You can kind of look at that in my career. Like after Glee came American Horror Story. And, and, and so in my work, and what I collect in art that I'm interested in, I, I feel like that happens. And then I just sort of learn everything that I can and I move on. And right now I'm in, like I said, this weird early 2000s minimalism phase with first and second century Greek and Roman helmets, which also has a narrative because most of these helmets, the, the soldiers who wore them received death by spear. So you can see if there's punctures in the helmet, that means that's how they died. And then I kept collecting them being like, why are these heads so small? Like I couldn't put any of these helmets on a toddler. And then you realize that in that location of the world, there was, there was like a zinc deficiency. So the craniums and skulls didn't grow to the size that we have now, which again, sent me down a warm, like everything is an education and everything leads to, wait, what, you know, weird moments of collecting and nothing that I'm interested in collecting is, I, I, a lot of people put, use collecting as a way to make money or put their money into it. I've never been interested in that. I've never sought out things that have value like that. I love this idea of a feeding system, like the art inspires the projects you create, the projects you create inspire the art you acquire. It like goes back mm -hmm. and forth. So looking at the minimalism now and the helmets, are you already percolating ideas for a show? Yeah, I am. And I, you know, and, and you don't know that you're, you're like, I think when we were writing feud and we were working on feud, I was kind of in a very broke maximalism phase, you know, that I was with the old masters and, you know, the sort of Bella Pock artists that I was collecting at that time. What does that mean? 
it just sort of, I was interested in paintings and artwork that was very coming out of COVID that was very colorful and exuberant because I had felt the world and myself had been gray for so long. So I was, I was naturally led to things that had a lot of movement, you know, in the old master paintings, everyone is wearing either like a full balloon skirt or a leopard, like just crazy. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, enough of that. So now I'm doing like, you know, Sting, Stingle and very sort of, I'm collecting a lot of like metallic work. And that's no mistake with the Roman and Greek heads. And now, no mistake, I'm working on something that is a sci-fi series that kind of has a very metallic, almost Gattaca-like approach to the design of it and the storytelling. So it's, it's, it's interesting how that creeps up on you. I heard you talk about your kids and you were saying that the thing you were proud of is that they're all into storytelling and that's such a big thing for you. It recurs in almost everything I've read about you. Um, mm -hmm. And I saw your Californian home, I think Beverly Hills, where you have the amazing library, which honestly looks like the best library I've ever seen oh, in my life. And it has it has like a text piece, like a mural um, mm. around the, the thing. And A, that's also mm -hmm. something you're interested in is scale. I love the mm -hmm. use of its sculptures. You often have like giant lights or like giant bathtubs that are like artworks in their own right. But mm -hmm. can you talk a bit about that library? Because it's such a, I want to know what those books are. Are they art books? But also what, what is that amazing mural? That's a funny story that I take no credit from, but again, something from my life. Di uh, Diane Keaton did that. Diane oh, Keaton right. owned that house, another one of my childhood idols. So I got to know her designer who she works with Stephen Shadley so he's the one who's doing the you know Hunter's Den Lodge thing that we're working on mm. so that house came on the market and I went and I, I just walked in and Diane had done everything like she had done that mural she had done those bookcases she had this thing where she she specifically hung all the light fixtures like at like Everything was like, if you were over six foot three, you would always be decapitated in that house because they were very Diane low. Um, You'd need again, one of those helmets, one of those Roman helmets to protect yeah, you. <laughs> which would not fit you. Um, so that was just, a, that, you know, that's pure Diane. But from that, I got close with Stephen, her person. And then he and I have gone on these mini adventures. And But I, I mean, what a tremendous artist she is. But she she like me, is a very obsessed person. And she goes down these wormholes of her childhood interests, which, you know, she's a California native, that like Spanish colonial Casa Romantica dream of what um, Los Angeles was. So that's, that's pure Diane. I had nothing to do with that. But when I bought the house, she, wouldn't, she refused to sell me a single book. And I was like, Diane, I, well, how am I going to do this? She was like, figure it out. So I, um, again, went on a wormhole and I'm like, you know what? I was, I don't, I, I want books that um, can influence my work. So for that library, I filled it with design, photography, font, books about typography, um, and then kind of did my own thing with it, which was one of my early obsessions when I moved to LA is I got to know a photographer named Herb Ritz. Yes. Um, Another who shot LA, like, you know, he shot so many of those early 90s Madonna mm. photographs and all the movie stars that they lured, kind of looked dipped in sepia and cream. And that was my dream of what I wanted to do. 
So again, everything is a dream and everything is a story. And I was like, okay, what's that was Diane's dream of California. Like, what's my twist on it? That was my twist. How often are you looking at art? And do you ever like use advisors? I've, I've met an advisor of yours over the past. We mm -hmm. had a great night out at Sotheby's in November last year. Is this an advisor you continue to use? And is this is something that you feel like is a really good resource as a collector? Mm -hmm. Yes, I use a wonderful man. His name is Joe Sheftel, who is um, just very, very brilliant because he knows a lot about a lot of things. He was introduced to me by our friend David Caffiero. And I had never used an art advisor. I kind of was just following my own path. But what I like about Joe is I can say, I'm interested in learning everything I can about this one artist. Can you help me? What's available? What do you know? Are there people alive who knew them? So, um, and we go on adventures, you know, we go on, we, we go on a lot of gallery crawls, sometimes not really to purchase, but to learn new, you know, Russell, you're so good at collecting new artists. I wish I was that good, but I'm much more, I think, interested in historical narratives. Uh, so, so Joe has been very helpful to me in that regard, like uh, helping me find learn about things and have access to things, not just with galleries, but with um, tracking things down, you know, and, and from all of my friends, like I've just learned so much. That's to me what art collecting is. John Dowd, who's a painter in Provincetown, who you met around six years, turned me on to this painter named John um, Koch. And I, I don't even remember how, I think he showed me a picture of someone he deeply admired who was a New York society painter, but was very overlooked in his time and just did incredible magical things. So I sort of fell into this wormhole of wanting to learn everything about this artist. And, you know, I slowly started to collect them. And now I have like 20 of his works. And my dream is to have a huge exhibition that can put him in some historical context. And then I found out like, you know, like Steve Martin owned one. And like, so like, you know, you found out like, oh, you've, you've got a, you saw something I saw. And that, mm -hmm. that's always thrilling when other people share your weird, obscure tastes. But Joe, for example, has been very helpful in, in things like that. I, I really I, love- He also, he also thinks I'm insane by the way, but yeah. <laughs> but all it good collectors like are, we are, we are insane, aren't we? It, it, it's weird, it's yeah. an addiction. I can't, I can't really put my finger on what it is, but it's compulsive and I have to do it. And if I don't do it, I feel something's missing. Yes, but I, I do do that every day. You know, I, I dedicate some part of my day to learning about something. You know, I have a process where I write late into the evening. And sometimes after I do that, I will turn to the art world to research something you know you always there's always something more to learn which is why art's such a great hobby because it is for the insatiable 
I saw a video that you made for Sotheby's and you were uh, sort of picking works. They were having like a contemporary auction, I think. And and mm. it really fascinated me, your choices, because they were all people that were kind of either on the margins or had been ignored in their careers. Like Stanley Whitney had made work for 40 years without really having exhibitions. And then now he's finally getting his moment. You even highlighted a painter that I've been, I've been obsessed with since I was about 20 called Maureen Galas, who paints mm-hmm. these amazing houses. But don't you think it's such an amazing time for art right now? Because a bit like you, unearthing all of these stories within the work that you do on television um, and film um, I feel like now is the time for all of these people that have just been ignored for so long to finally have their you know their time to be heard I do you know what is what has been very interesting about the art world and it's not been a mistake is uh, I feel like the art world has become a theatrical world and what happened was COVID because I think the rarefied people who could go to look at art pre-COVID, you would have to be cleared for the most part to get in many of these galleries, to see them, to watch an auction, to bid. You had to be, you know, that was not available to me as a young person, that kind of world. And then COVID happened and they, to stay alive, put all of these auctions in a much bigger way online and kind of figured out, I think how to make them a theatrical events and almost it, it felt like modern bullfighting. Like when you watch a Sotheby's auction and you see three people going at this thing, it's like pure serotonin, you know, it doesn't even feel real. And I think a lot of young people have discovered the art world through these auctions. And like I do, you watch one auction and you're like hooked because it is adrenalized and it is like watching a sporting event it's like boxing or it's just like you know it's my version of football i suppose you know there's a winner and there's a loser and there are stakes and i think a lot of people through that process have learned about older people that have fallen into obscurity like and like you know he's not gone but you know the stanley whitney's of the world and it's lifted a a veil of rarefication and it feels much more mainstream to me now for many, many people to not just buy, but to learn. That's the, that's what I've noticed. And you can see it every year, you know, around this time, I look and I look at auction attendance, online hits during auctions, and every year it's doubling, doubling, doubling. And people who are watching this cannot necessarily afford a $40 million Warhol or Basquiat, but they're getting the bug and maybe collecting contemporary people and making new choices, which I find is great. I always find the thing with auctions is that when that gavel goes down and you haven't won or someone hasn't won, it's like a punishment. It's like, bang, you haven't won. <laughs> they had, it's mm. like you feel, mm-hmm. you feel this sort of like guilt that you didn't actually have enough money to buy whatever it was you wanted to buy. Yeah, and you know, and then what happens is you become haunted by the things that are lost. Yeah. That you didn't get. Do you have shoulda, you know, woulda, couldas? Do you have big ones that you missed out on that you were like, ah? Well, my favorite story, not necessarily shoulda, woulda, couldas, but my favorite my favorite thing that ever happened to me in my collecting life, I don't know if I ever told you this. Did I tell you this Warhol story? Mm-mm. Well, I mean, I'm, okay, you've so told the, me a few, but yeah. Okay, so I was working on the Andy Warhol Diaries as a producer for Netflix, and you know, you'd see the footage, and we were doing episode two, which is about Andy finally meets someone with taste, Jed Johnson, who decorates his home. And he was just a pack rat at that point. But Jed 
put all the objects together in a great way. So there was, there was this literally two second flash of a Maxfield Parish painting above Andy Warhol's mantle. And it apparently was Andy Warhol bought it in the 60s. Maxfield Parish was, you know, a, a 1920s, 30s illustrator who did brilliant oil work, much of it of water, and almost these iridescent colors. And I, free, I, I, I was obsessed with it. I'm like, that's so weird that he was into that painting, which is very, very old school brilliant. And I took a picture of it and I spent two years trying to find that painting and it had sold in the sixties and nobody knew where it was and nobody could help me find out even anything about it. Um, it was sold, I think at his auction upon his death and then kind of never was seen again. And I, and I'd spent a lot of time and interest, like studying it, the name of it, the, and it had a couple titles and how it was made and where was it in Maxfield Parish's lexicon. And finally, how did Andy Warhol have it? And all was lost. And I remember one day thinking, okay, well, this is stupid. Like, you're never going to find out. Just stop. So I moved on. You know, I let it go. And four months later, a friend of mine dinged me and said, you like Maxfield Parish, don't you? There's this thing that's coming up that I thought you might enjoy seeing. And he texted me a picture of it, and it was that painting. Ah, that's fucking and amazing. Like, and I remember thinking like, oh, it found me. Yeah. It, fa it found me, and I don't know how, but I don't, but I, but like things like that. It's like when you stop so, looking for love, love finds you. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like. Well, that's what I've been telling you for no, years. No, you have. But that, that's, that's my most magic. <laughs> I know. That's my most magical painting story of the Warhol Parish. You know, and I was lucky enough that I was able to get it. And then it was a, it was an auction. So. I couldn't, I, and I kept saying, let me just buy it. Like, not, please don't put it at auction. Please don't put it at auction. They were like, well, we have to, it's an estate. But the guy, but I found it. And so I was prepared and it was me and this other person who was bidding on it. And it was like a blood sport. And I, and I felt like if I have to mortgage every goddamn thing that I own to get this painting after this long of a hunt and I, I got it, but it, I love the story of it. It's a story. You know, was it incredible? Like your next TV show was it incredibly <laughs> expensive, like more than yes. And did you love it yes. because it was owned by Warhol? Did that add to the allure of it and the magic of it? I loved it because Warhol owned it and loved it, and it made no sense in terms of the other things that he had collected. But you know, he was so like me, schizophrenic in his um, loves. But it meant something to him, and he was an artist, and I think that he just deeply admired the color work and uh, the technique of it, the, the opposite of what he did. Although you look at this painting, and it's like of a water scene, and it's purple and magenta and blue, and it's iridescent, and it glows. And you can see how in the 80s, particularly, he started to put these weird colors that didn't belong together. And I, and I look at that Maxfield Parish, and I'm like... I can sort of see how that maybe influenced him. So yes, mm. there was that, but also more than anything, it was just that I had, I was on a hunt and I had, and I, I had, was on a spiritual quest and I learned a lot about not just Warhol, but Maxfield Parish from that, can, from that 
moment. Can we talk about Warhol a lot? Like the, I spoke to you at the time, but the Warhol diaries for me were like crack. I was obsessed with them. They were mm-hmm. just beyond brilliant. But Warhol for you is an incredibly important figure. And I think you've said that you see a lot of yourself in Warhol. What is it about him mm-hmm. as an artist and his output and his sort of friendships and the way he operated? You know, it's interesting. Whenever I talk about this, it's very difficult for people to imagine it. But, you know, like Warhol, I was an outcast within my own family. I saw things in a very interesting way, weird way. I was very ambitious. I sort of had the same ambition as him in a different way, as a gay man. And, you know, also as gay men, we always like, no matter who you are, you grow up thinking like you're not good looking enough or you're not special enough or you're not attractive yes. enough. And then because the culture of heteronormative people make you feel that way as a young person, maybe not so much now. I just always loved and, and understood how he felt outside the system. And then like many wonderful people was making and seeing things in a different way and was absolutely persecuted for it and made fun of it for it. And people wrote, you know, people don't think of Andy Warhol in this way now because he's on Mount Olympus. But, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, the thing that I was the most moved by was he was reinventing form and looking at the world in a different way through a different lens, through a really a queer sensibility. And he did a series of, you know, art shows with the shadow paintings and the piss paintings and things that were very avant-garde and then would be destroyed by the media you know and i feel that way in my career too you know when i've done things and made things so many times they're attacked because they're not in the lane of what a polite society and then 20 years later i'm always so moved when you know they they become rediscovered or sometimes it only takes a year for something to be absolutely reviled and then critically loved and accepted. And what I've learned is that that doesn't matter, but I was always just so moved by Warhol writing things in the diary saying things like, well, maybe I'm not very good. I'm not, I'm not like, you know, Lichtenstein. I'm not as talented as um, Jasper Johns. But uh, what I loved about him too is that he recognized beauty in others and collected others that he deeply admired. And the Basquiat thing I thought was so complicated and interesting. And I certainly have had my experience with that uh, kind of mentoring situation. And I don't know, I was just so moved by him as a person and I deeply understood him and I deeply understood his sadness. And the filmmaker, Andrew Rossi, was so brilliant and we had discovered and it had a thing very early on of like, okay, well, we don't, and when we sold it, the person at the time who heard the pitch said, no one wants to hear or see another thing about Andy Warhol in our lifetime. And I was like, but you don't know, you only are looking, you don't know anything about his romantic relationships. You don't know anything about his boyfriends, his heartbreak, his longing, his um, process. And so that became the DNA of looking at him as a queer artist. And, you know, it, it, it was made, I wish, I was just proud that I could get that point in my life, had the, had the oomph to get it green lit and it got on the air and, you know, it has slowly but surely become a mainstay. And I think like, I don't want to put a number to it, but like multi, more people have watched the Andy Warhol diaries than I've watched 
name a big hit, like millions and millions and millions of people all over the world. And so that, that, that has meant something to me. And I fought for it and I wanted him to be seen in a much more complete way. And, and that's, that's what I feel that show did. I feel like that idea of longing is so powerful as well, especially from a queer perspective. It's such a specific thing. And when I was looking at your whole life story, I kept thinking of this term, The Outsider. And I was almost mm. like, oh my God, your book could be called The Outsider. But then I discovered that you actually had a real passion for the outside in terms mm -hmm. of like pruning your hedges, which I felt madly in love with. And then I was like, oh no, your book should be called The Gardener. Um, because mm. in a way, everything you create is kind of like putting together a garden. Like I feel like you're your shows you know i've seen so many of them but they have all these different sometimes you have like actors you've never even heard of alongside a superstar that you haven't seen for 10 years uh, alongside someone that you are looking at in the newspapers that very day like there's this real combination of different plants in a way that mm. that, that creates this very baroque kind of um garden um can you speak a bit about your relationship to nature and gardens well that again was something that was harvested by my um literally by my grandmother um, mm. all my love of all of that stuff. And, you know, my grandmother was born in 1913. So she came of age in a period of great romanticism, really old school gardens and old school things. So I, you know, grew up, she, she wanted to talk about things that were in vogue in like 1922, which at that point, when I was growing up, that really had fallen out of favor, like chrysanthemums and, you know, like weird things. So I've always loved that. And, you know, I just, as an artist, like I want to be creative every day. And sometimes being creative can mean watering a plant or controlling mm. the shape of something or letting it go crazy. Um, and I, I'm working on a project right now that is a, is like an insane garden. That's 40 acres. That is, um, that is a story, which is designed to put things in conversation that you would never put together in a room the conflict and that's kind of the thing when i'm making something i'm like well what's the conflict here so if you look at something like the thing russell and i did together it's like i want to put someone new in my life in this show that i have recently become friendly with and love and see that that would be russell hmm. i want to discover someone that i've never worked with before that auditioned which was tom hollander who plays truman capote a complete surprise to me I want to put someone in here that is a classic and true that I know exactly what they can deliver. And yet they're going to be written for in a way that they can go crazy, which was like, you know, Naomi Watts and Jessica Lang. So all of, all of these things like gardens, like art, like shows are conversations of things in conflict. And when you talk about art, I like to display art in conflict. Like I don't like things, everything the same. So like, I like a Helen Frankenthaler next to a Magritte next to her, like the things you're like, wait, what? And they, they, when you do that, it, it forces you to examine not just what you're trying to say, but like what you're inspired by. Um, but the gardens are a big part of the art, you know? And I try and, um, again, I go through phases. I'm leaving my clipping boxwoods phase and now I'm moving into just something like, I want wild, insane, overgrown things and yet in the art world i'm interested in minimalism so i don't know i think the title of my book or whatever i'm going to call it i think which probably sums up this conversation and my collecting is too many beautiful things in the world 
which was another thing that Warhol and I had in common. Like, I, yeah. I really do feel if you look at my life, I have dedicated my life to beauty and making things that were seen, not seen as beautiful, beautiful, which is a lot of the subject matter that I've written about too. I just think you're just like a curator of life, like you're saying about the gardens, but the way you curate casts, the way you curate teams you work with, your houses are curated. You, you have in your mind's eye for what that will be. H have you ever considered curating an exhibition of something? I know you were saying about like you want this sale potentially, but is there like mm -hmm. an, an, is there a way of like bringing that into fruition? Yeah, you know, I would really love that. You and I had a very brief conversation that I'm like, okay, we're going to revisit this in this year where we talked about opening some sort of storefront in New York and doing something like that, which would be a, a real kick in the pants to me. And I would love doing that because it, it's, it's odd when you become the outsider and then you become the establishment, which is where I seem to be in my career. Like, I find that very startling, you know? the idea of green light power or, or whatever you want to call it, that I can kind of make what I want to make and work hopefully with who I want to work with. And by that, I mean, at least I can get somebody on the phone and talk to them about, say, hey, I want to work with you. But yes, I would be very, very interested in that. And I would be very interested in, um, I mean, let's just do it, Russell. I don't know why we're not, why don't we just commit to it? But like, it would just be a great thing to say every month we're, we're showcasing things. And, and I, what I really love at this point in my career is, is bringing attention to, like you said, when you went into my New York house and you felt you learned something like, oh, I want to learn more about Patrick Angus. Like I would like to do, I like things like that. I like showcasing people who are in the shadows or looking at people or artists in a way that you never did before. That's kind of a turn on for me. I, I like the idea of having a space where you know, it would be a conversation with me and you where I would bring you a really super emerging contemporary artist and then you would be like, oh, that really inspires me about this neoclassical artist or or this, you know, this this sculpture from like 12 AD or whatever. And then, then they would sit mm -hmm. together and they would have a conversation for however long in this space. I feel like something yes. like this back and forth. It's almost like a mini play. Yeah. <laughs> between it's two theatrical, objects. isn't it? Thing. But it's like, yeah. you know, it's like from from whatever our our kind of like me like me and Rob creating and curating this show is that we come from whatever our sort of interests are and then we come together and then we we bring that focus together. It's like you and me could come from our places of interest and then we bring our focus together in this one space. And it's also so powerful, the knock-on effect of that, because like you seeing the painting at Ryan's house of um, Hugh Steers, and then you got a print of Hugh Steers. I saw that. Kadif Kirwan, the actor, saw that. We've all become well, obsessed Well, I then curated a show on Hugh Steers. It's, it's like, the David yeah, Turner exactly. Gallery curate, in Paris, and it's like all exactly. these things. It's like a domino effect. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I love it. But that's what, I think that's what art can do for people, is that you then, you, it's like a, you find like-minded people. We're all fucking nerds total geeks yeah but it's such a when when you the best thing that happened to me is when i lost my shame about being a nerd when i was younger i was so ashamed that i wanted to read or i was interested in art i didn't tell anyone mm -hmm. because it wasn't what regular boys were doing but as soon as i went oh no i do like this my life just opened up completely and yeah and it's so true because when you connect to other people on that level like me and rob's mine and rob's friendship is based on that we were introduced by an artist we we're obsessed with tracy emin and then it's like, yeah. and now here we are. It's like art can really, you know, reveal so much about someone. I think that's true. Also, even talking out loud, what's so interesting about what you and I are even musing about is, you know, the art world 
the establishment of the art world for so long was controlled by, run by, made to profit for straight men, straight white men. And I think sort of now with emerging voices and, and the culture changing a little bit more, there's new ways of looking at, and I find that interesting, you know. I'm interested in, and it doesn't mean that I only want to showcase gay artists, but it would be interesting, like there's so many women who have been neglected by time. Yeah. There's yeah. so many people of color who've been neglected by time. But our queer sensibility that we share would be interesting to put into a, a mainstream thing, which again is something I've tried to do my whole career because I've always felt from early on when I would have gay characters, nobody wants to watch this. You can't have that, you can't do that. And I've always thought the more specific you can be, the more universal something can become. And I do feel that about art and the artist's way. So, I mean, let's look for the storefront. Where are we going to do it? Let's do it. And you should do it we in London as well. You're, you're reluctant to come to London. I was trying to convince you to do one here. <laughs> but It's funny you say that because I had a, a New Year's goal this year where I'm like, you know what? I'm I'm going to travel every month of the year. And I've already made European travel plans for March and May. So yes. I'm going to be there. I'm going there. Yes. You might have to meet me in Paris, but well, I'm I can going. do that. And that. then we do a real estate shopfront tour of London and yeah. try and find the space. Yeah, yeah, we can set that up. That's fun. Okay, good. Do you do you feel misunderstood by the world, Ryan? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I know it's a weird thing to ask, but like, I just felt like looking into you, I've, I've got to know you much more than I did previously. And yes. from what I had, I, what, what I'd understood of you isn't at all who you are. And I don't know no. what that periphery thing is. But, you know, when I think of like Pose, learning about the idea that like trans women were, were being shunned from gay bars by the gay people who were already being persecuted. I hadn't even ever thought of that. I'd never seen that on mainstream TV. Like, mm -hmm. and I feel like at the core of what you do is this deep empathy and a deep kind of solidarity and allyship for all kinds of people that have been pushed to the side and treated badly even by other people who are being treated badly and that seems to be like this kind of deep thing within the work why do you think people don't see that maybe i i have learned i don't give two fucks anymore about why <laughs> and i did for a really long time and again things always come around and catch up but you know there's something and i think the stuff that i do that threatens you people um and you have to understand when i came of age you know, the holy grail of television was The Sopranos. And the people who were writing about television were white, overweight critics, men, who loved a very specific kind of man, which was Tony Soprano, Breaking Bad. These were the things that they deified and canonized. And I think those works are tremendous, so I'm not slagging on that. But I think I have a perspective of it now that's different. And, and I wish I had not taken it so personally. And I mean, it's interesting when you think about it, like nobody remembers how attacked Glee was. Yeah. No one, no one remembers the first season of American Horror Story, how hated it was and attacked over and over again. And I'm not talking about by fans. I'm talking about by the establishment it was a very, these things have very queer sensibilities. And, you know, success is the best revenge. So what I've learned is to not take it so personally, but I'm always amazed time and time and time and time again, how you make something and you think that people are really going to understand you why you're making it, you know, Dahmer is a perfect example of that.
two years out, I think people really understood that show and get what we were trying to make. But, you know, the first month of that show, I had to get extra security for my family and myself. And a lot of that started with a sort of critical piling on and it became, it filtered into social media. But to answer a long answer, yeah, yeah, I always feel like an outsider and I always feel like not invited to the party. So I make my own party and I make my own. That's why I work with so many actors over and over and over again, like Mr. Russell, you know, because I'm trying to form a community because as a child and an artist, I could not find one. You know, it wasn't easy to be an out gay artist in 1998 when I did my first thing. You know, people, I think, look at my life and my career and maybe because I don't do a lot of press or talk a lot of things, but I think they have a certain, they, they feel a certain confidence that was certainly not there in me as a younger person. And I had to painfully, to keep doing what I wanted to do, grow a real set of armor around myself and to not let certain things in. And I've, I've learned that, you know, all of those people that <laughs> made it so difficult for me at the beginning are all gone. And I'm lucky enough to keep soldiering on. I feel like a Taylor Swift song or something, but that's true. How did you keep, <laughs> you know that, when you were getting kicked at that point of Glee and American mm -hmm. Horror Story, how did you keep going? What was it? I just had a couple of great uh, champions within the system who f helped me figure out that the great equalizer was mainstream economic success that you think you're so on the outside, but you're, you just created a billion dollar asset. So shut the fuck up and stop whining and know that your, your ability that the world is telling you was weird and wrong and too gay and too bizarre and too Baroque and not what should be made and is actually something that people love and want to watch and have done time and time and time and time again, you know? So that gave me great strength. And like, I just learned that there is a long journey to life and that everything like in the art world that is popular one day will suddenly not be popular, but then we'll come back again and suddenly be popular. You know, you're seeing it now in the art world with all those 80s artists like, you know, Julian Schnabel and Roberto Clemente, these kind of amazing artists who then suddenly like that went out of favor and now are back again because people understand maybe what they were trying to do in a way they were either uneducated or too lazy to look at. I've learned that with in my dotage to not take anything as personally as I should. But when you're an artist, you do take it personally because mm -hmm. you make a piece of art and people say, I like it or I don't. And, you know, my career, the big things in my career became, began with the dawn of social media. So everything was more amplified and louder. The noise was so loud. I've learned to sort of tune out the noise. I also think in Dharma that one of the greatest scenes in television history is the scene with the deaf um, gay guys chatting to each other. Um, yeah. in, Ameri in American Sign Language. And also mm -hmm. Nisi Nash's performance, I think, is mm -hmm. one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, she's just extraordinary. And I couldn't believe that you'd met her so young in her life or mm -hmm. something, like much further before, and then you sort of called her up years later. I love yeah, we, that story. I, I, she, she, she and I came up together, you know, in, in the late 90s, and I've always loved her. And um, But that's another gift. Like, I always looked at her. Like, when I first met Nisi, I was like, oh, she was a comic. 
And she was beautiful and articulate and wild. And I said, hey, do you want to play a lobster? And the first show I did called Popular. And she was like, you're crazy, but yes. Yeah. So she, she dressed up in a lobster costume. <laughs> And um, <laughs> and so you want to play a lobster? <laughs> yes. And so she and I, she she would always say, you know, I hope you write something that's not a lobster for me. And it took it took me twenty two years, but I did. And you know, I'll always work with her. But yeah, I mean, I just loved her. And like me, she felt like a real outsider. She was more than just a comic. There was something else going on with what she was trying to say. Just like with all the people I work with, I feel like all I can do is provide opportunities and let you fly and you're going to have your interpretation and do your own thing. It's nice. You're creating a rep, a repertoire around Judas. Yes, I really have tried to very much sort of loosely based on that. Um, you know, what Orson Welles did, another outsider who was trying to find a family in a community when there was none and was not, was not allowed at the party or not allowed at the table. So he made his own table. That's what I have always tried to do. And, you know, at any point I have 30 to 40 actors who are on my speed dial. And you may not know it, but I'm always thinking of like, once I fall in love with you, I'm forever in love with you. So there may be a year or two where you don't get a Valentine in the mail, but that doesn't mean I'm not trying to find that next thing, you know, and that's, that's been a joy. Well, we love your party, Ryan. Thank you so much for talking <laughs> to us today. Before we get into our final questions, I just want—I I heard a story that you said about Warhol that Jerry Hall told you about the lips, and then I've oh, got yes. a really good Andy Warhol story I want to tell before we get to our final questions. Can you mm -hmm. can you tell us about that Warhol story? Well, the Jerry Hall story, which is so great because I love her, was that it—you know—in the way that she told, if he likes you, he'll paint within your lip line. If he doesn't like you you'll get a messy lip. And I think that's kind of true. Like, you know, like the pristine icons have like nothing goes smeary. But I thought that and I had never thought about that. And I always thought, Oh, that's such a wicked thing to do. And she had figured it out. But that's my Jerry Hall story. The other one I, I, I found out recently is that Andy would go to a, a barber's or a hairdresser's in his wig. And they would cut mm -hmm. his wig and everyone would pretend it was his hair. And then two weeks later, he would go back in a longer wig as if his hair had grown. <laughs> and, they would, and they would do this whole charade again. And then he would go back That's with amazing. a longer wig. It's just so fucking amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> That's the other thing that I loved about, you know, Andy Warhol is just a complete invention of his own imagination. And, you know, and at the time was seen as ridiculous. But now you look at that that wig, the armor that we were earlier talking about. And it's like he was smarter than anybody else. He created something out of ether that is iconic and and cut through the culture and the noise, which is hard to do. And I feel that in my life that I'm like this weirdo and I have created myself from my interests and loves and I'm a little flamboyant. I'm wearing a cape to the Capote premiere. So get ready, Russell. I'm ready. But, um, I'm ready. Yeah. We're so all getting like ready that. for that. <laughs> yeah. After your Met Gala looks. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Iconic times. The meme that goes up me as Liberace. I was like, what did I do? But I loved you, him. I got you, to meet him. Did you meet Liberace? You, you met Liberace. I, I met Liberace when I was in college. He came to my college. And I was a reporter. And I did an interview with his costumer. And I got to meet Liberace. Oh my God. What other famous artists have you met then that have, that have really been 
impactful to you? You know, at this point, I think you'd have to, of my lifetime, you'd have to say, who haven't you met? Or who, like, because I was saying that the other day, I was like, have I, do I even have a bucket list? All of those people that I was obsessed with as a young person, I'm talking actors, maybe not artists. Um, I, you know, I never met Warhol, sadly, but we have many people in common. So I feel in a weird way I did. But yeah, I mean... I, I, I name somebody and I'll like Hockney. You have you ever hung out met? with David Hockney? Met in passing, but never talked to. Like when you were younger and interviewing people, were there artists that come up then? Like, did you ever meet Lichtenstein or? No. And, and, and I sort of feel like I, at that point in time, I didn't have as much access no. to the art world, you know, as I would now. But like Ellsworth Kelly or. It sounded like you were meeting Cher. I think you met Cher like nine I, times. And then I've she was Cher's, like, you have to stop uh, yeah. interviewing me. Cher was like, go away. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, the thing that I'm also, that. I, I'm, um, I'm trying to seek out artists who are working today that I like to pay, you know, studio visits to. Like my favorite sculptor working is Barry X Ball. And. I got to go to his studio and see him work and cut my foot on a piece of marble out in the yard. And like, it, so I'm very lucky and blessed to be able to do that with more contemporary people. Absolutely. All right. Well, then we're going to get to our final questions now, Brian. This has been so bloody brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, the, I hope it's been good. I feel like it's been uh, a it's therapy been beyond. session. I, yes, it's been so it's incredible. Been That's what this okay. show is. It's, it's art therapy. therapy. For the um, okay. If you could everything. do an art heist and you could have any artwork in the world that you haven't already got, uh, you could steal it nicely, what would that be and why? That's a very good question. Thank you. It would... I guess because of my lineage, it would probably, and my first thing, it would probably be the huge, massive, original Robert Indiana Love sculpture that's like eight foot mm -hmm. tall. I would steal that because it was my beginning as a baby. That, that would mean a lot to me. I would, I would probably, I don't even, I mean, he did additions, but I would probably try and track down the first. Where did your family one end up? Yeah. Did that not end up with you at some point? I don't know where it is at this point. I think my mother still has it in her house and she learned to hide it from me. So <laughs> as one would. <laughs> She's got an elf on the shelf on the Robert Indiana. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. That's my elf on the shelf, the Robert Indiana's. Yeah. That, that's probably the one. Okay. The other question we ask every guest is what is your favorite color? Black. You, you wear a lot of black, actually. I've noticed that. I do wear a lot of black. I mean, there was a young, when I was a younger person, sometimes I put on the color, but I, I just realized that my creative mind and my life was so chaotic that I just wanted a uniform. So I wear a lot of two people. I wear a lot of James Person. I wear a lot of Rick Owens. And they're kind of just like, that's my uniform. I have the same pair of Andy Mühlemeister boots from 1997 that I've had resold 15 times. And my favorite painting is a Magritte painting that is one of his rare paintings that is in black and white and gray. And it's of the darkest day of World War II in his estimation. And it's very black. And um, I, when I, even when I was a child, I would always say, what's your favorite color? Black. I mean, nobody back then was saying that. I don't know why. Mm. To me, it's all the colors and an absence of color, and it can be whatever you want it to be. Mm. Amazing. And what, what is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art and art collecting? My best advice that I never received, but I have learned is never listen to anybody but your heart, not your head. 
only listen to your heart. Like what, when you see something, I do believe in love at first sight. I do believe in that. And everything that I've ever purchased is that thing. It's like your heart swells a little bit. You're, you lean in a little bit. And I only bought one thing in my whole life as an investment that I was like, eh, I don't know. I don't want to say what it is because the artist is very popular. And I held on to it for a year and then I sold it at a loss. And I was like, see, this is what happens when you don't have a connection to your thing, a kind of an animalistic, you know, uh, whenever I see something that I ultimately buy, the first words I think of is, I love you. I feel like I'm telling that artwork, like, you know, um, I, it's something that I find myself saying to something I see. It moves me in some way. And I want to keep being moved by it. And I want to share why I'm moved by it with other people who may not see in it what I see, but maybe could, which sounds very romantic, but that's how I view art. I heard you also describe casting a bit like that process when you're putting together a, a group of people for a show. The when you're like watching people on videos or you see them in person, mm -hmm. you would sometimes sort of there's just something and you're not even sure what it is, but it's just like that's the person. <laughs> yeah, I think that casting is also like falling in love, but it's also about falling in love with the artist and sort of educating yourself about where do they come from, where are they in their career, who's up, who's down, who who has something to say a lot of times for me it's like who needs a break sometimes that matters to me how also like my favorite thing to do is is reinvent people and reintroduce them to people i'm like you're you need to still be in love with this person you've forgotten them you know i've had that so many times in my career and, and luckily some of those people have won awards for me in that moment being like how are you not working every day how are people not seeing you of all you can be and what you can do? And a lot of times actors like artists get typecast mm. and I like breaking that. I was also blown away at your, um, I think it was Golden Globes, like Lifetime Achievement Award or something, but it was this big award you were given. Mm -hmm. And the way that everyone you brought out in the audience that you'd invited for dinner, you sort of spoke about each and every one of those actors and what, what they meant to you. But they mm -hmm. were all like openly who they were. So if they were lesbian, they were openly lesbian, they were openly gay. Yeah. They were, And it suddenly made me think Russell's always been that too, because Russell as a yeah. British actor was an anomaly. There was no one like him at the time. Like I remember when I first met him, I was like, you're openly gay. I was in a band and like, I was told not to say I was gay at the time. You know what I mean? Like by my management. For, so for years, I was always confused. I was like, am I meant to say I am? You know, it was horrible. But I remember meeting Russ and being really impressed by that, that, that kind of conviction of self. And like, actually, if you don't get a job, fuck it. I can't not be who I am. I really respect that. Yes, and you have to realize that that's happened in only the past 10 years. You know, it's a, gener it's a generational thing. You know, and Russ, you know, I say this to other gay actors like Matt Bomer and yeah. Russell. I say, you don't even know the effect that you have had on young people who before you thought, I cannot be who I am and be in the entertainment industry. I have to lie. I have to be miserable. I have to drink. I have to do, I have to do everything I can to white knuckle it. And so for someone like Russell, you know, who I deeply admire, the legacy is not just on the work, it's on the world that you built and the bridge that you built for other people, you know? And that is something that 
you don't know now because you're in the middle of it, but don't underestimate or overestimate that. It's a huge, subtle thing, the shifts in culture. And, you know, you did that. Your group of guys and women did that. And I was yeah. a part of that in my own way, too. And, you know, in our, in our own weird way, we tried to change the world. And we were not just artists. We were activists. Totally. I, and, I actually feel like what you've done is radical, to be honest. It's a radical yeah. shift of culture. And people talk about, oh, this artist shifted culture or that performer shifted culture. But actually, your body of work, Ryan, 100% is a radical activist statement in a way. It continues it's like, to be it's so, profound. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is why, can you review all of my work? Because you get it. <laughs> <laughs> you should be the only review I ever read, which I don't read. <laughs> well, luckily, podcasts last forever. It's yes, just yes, evergreen yes. content. I know. But you're so kind people to are going to keep but... hearing this on loop. Yeah. I feel that now. I, I definitely didn't feel it at the beginning. Like, you know, I've always been a person, I have a medical thing where it's hard for me to sweat. I have to work really hard to sweat. I have a very low thyroid. And I think that that also applies. Like the effort that I felt that I went through and how hard I tried, I, you know, being half Danish and having Danish, you know, resting bitch face. Uh, I, I, think, <laughs> I think my attempt and my efforts were not, People didn't think that, but thank you for saying it because I certainly a, felt it. There's a pic of you in the New York Times with your kids on Halloween and they're wearing masks. I think it's just two of your kids at the time, but mm -hmm. you were like giving a little grin. And I just mm -hmm. thought, I, I loved that picture because when they grow up, it, it just shows how proud you are. They're like your proudest achievement. I thought it was yeah. a really fucking cool photograph, actually. Yeah, um, and that was a really Because it didn't was... have the resting bitch face. That's why I'm saying it. <laughs> yes, and that was also a point in my career, you know, where I had been kind of in some weird jail for two and a half years nothing, I couldn't catch a break. And so I sort of had these things that kind of clicked. And, you know, people were like, oh, he is, oh, okay, he's still here. He's still, he's still contributing in some way. Yeah, that period of my life, that, that was a fun, that was a fun, I remember that photograph in that day. And I was like, oh, I feel so blessed to still be able to do what I do. Yeah. And with my kids. Before we go, can I quickly just ask you, when you're writing, like, for example, I heard when you first met Lady Gaga, she called you up or you spoke to her on the phone and she said, I want to do a show with you. So you said, I'll come back to you in six weeks time. I'm mm -hmm. going to go away and think about this. And then apparently mm -hmm. you wrote loads. When you're writing in that kind of obsessive six weeks, say, uh, what are your snacks? Do you listen to music? Like, what, what, what is it like? Have you got a real discipline to the way you write? And what are you eating? <laughs> I never, I never eat. I never eat like when I'm writing, like I'm not like that. It's never tight. I don't, I'm not a snacker. I don't do things like that. Um, I write really late at night for the most part. So usually at that point you know, in my, in my age, when I was younger, I'd be like, maybe I'd have a glass of red wine or something just to turn off, but I don't do that anymore. But I'm a very late night writer. And then mm. I edit everything and refine everything in the morning. So my nights are devoted to purely subconscious, let everything flow, knowing that you're just trying. You're, you're trying something. You're following some weird magical thing. And sometimes I'll look up and three hours have passed and it'll be three in the morning. I'm like, what the fuck? What happened? And then sometimes I'll read it in the morning and then I'll feel like, well, I'm not changing a word. And sometimes I'll be like, well, none of this works. But... um. Yeah, I mean, she was a very moving example of someone who was like, I wanted to be a serious actress and, and then I became a singer and no one took me seriously and I want to do that. And I was, you know, I loved her music and I'm like, anybody who makes those videos that you make is a brilliant actress. 
And then she did my show and then she won some awards. And then Bradley Cooper, who's a friend, was casting A Star is Born. And I called him up. I'm like, she's the real deal and she will kill yourself for you. And then he met her and loved her and that's all history. But yeah, I mean, I have great, she's, she's an example and I have many of them of just like, I love you. I want to help everybody else see you as I do. Yeah. And I think like you, she's a master of transformation and mm -hmm. um, kind of that like grotesque kind of uh, thing that's within every human and they want to suppress it. And then when you see it in culture, it's like so exciting because yeah. people are able to express something like, you know, mm -hmm. her wearing the meat dress or her covered in blood or whatever yeah. it might be. It was just radical and exciting. And there's never been anybody in history like her and there never will again. No, I agree. I agree. Truly a the, unique yeah. artist, like yeah. all the people we've been talking about. Like you, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, Ryan say. Murphy, thank you so much. This has thank been a massive, massive honor and privilege. And I'm sure everyone's going to love listening to this as we enter the new year, because this is our New Year's Day episode. We're heading into a brand new year, 2024. And new, new Year's Day is my favorite day of the year. Is it? Uh, Why? It is because it's, it's even as a, when I was a child, it's like the day of limitless opportunity. Everything is new. Anything can happen. There's always something great coming that you don't know. It's like you get a clean slate to design your life. And I always am very reflective and on that day, and I love it. So I'm happy this is airing on that day. Cool. Well, that's very serendipitous. Reinvent yourself, everyone. That is the lesson from today's class. Uh, I hope you and Russell get to do. We're going to be hanging out because I know all of this. Shit. I think you. Yeah, you. Oh, yeah, doing, you've store, done two apparently. shows together so far. <laughs> You're going to open a show, and then I hope you do more more things together, more films or TV. Or we something. are going to. Well, that's very exciting news. You heard it here first. Um, Ryan, are you on Instagram? I am. Are you? I don't know if I follow you. What is it's it? At Ryan Murphy. Ryan, no, it's Ryan Murphy Productions. Oh no, I do follow that. Okay. I thought that was your company, but that's actually you. Cool. It's, it's and, everything. Um, and Capote is launching, I think, in spring, isn't it? In February. It's at the last day of January. Oh, oh the last it, day of it January. It runs okay. all through February, March. And that is directed by Gus Van Sant, who we also interviewed recently. So if you want to hear about that show, I think we speak a bit about it in that episode as well. Another great outsider and uh, curious thinker. I love Gus. Mm -hmm. So Russell Tovey, Ryan Murphy... We would say goodbye now. That's the end of the episode. <laughs> goodbye. Thanks, we'll be guys. back very goodbye. soon. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.